Hey guys, welcome to Mintcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I'm your host, Manar Muhawish. Some are calling it a revolution, others an American intifada. Millions of people have taken to the streets to demand justice for George Floyd and an end to police brutality. After a viral video showed Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck, slowly suffocating the life out of him while he begged for his mother. Floyd struggled for air for over eight minutes. His dying words, I can't breathe, were heard around the globe, igniting a mass uprising in calls to defund the police, place law enforcement under community control, and even dismantle law enforcement institutions altogether. Now, the state, under the Trump administration, has met their calls with brutality, beating and shooting protesters and journalists alike with rubber bullets, tear gas, and so-called less-than-lethal weapons. Now, the National Guard has been deployed in over 30 state, states as the government struggles to keep a lid on the public's anger. Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Breonna Taylor, the list of victims of racist police violence goes on and on. Police, on average, kill over 1,000 Americans every year, vastly more than the rest of the developed world combined. Yet officers are largely protected from, from any consequences. So joining me to discuss the protests, the police response, racial injustice, and what needs to be done to secure meaningful change are two very special guests, Margaret Kimberly and Monique Colors doty Margaret is a New York-based writer and activist for peace and justice. You can find her work at the Black Agenda Report, where she's a senior columnist. Her book, Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, was published in February. Monique Colors doty is a local organizer for the Black Lives Matter Twin Cities Metro and Greater Minnesota Region and the Twin Cities Coalition for Jamar Clark. Now, ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having thank me. You. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, Monique, I'd like to start with you. The world's attention has been captured by Minneapolis. I mean, it is the epicenter of the movement. But our perceptions of the movement come mediated through cable news or short clips on social media that too often describe the movement as violent and a form of rioting. Take us from the very beginning. Could you explain to us what the situation has been like on the ground and how it may differ from what is being presented by the mainstream corporate media? So, actually, I'd like to go back a little further than George Floyd to say that we've had so many police homicides, including my, my nephew, Marcus Golden, who was killed in 2014, that we have been organizing um, and collaborating with various organizations very heavily for over five years now. So when we do have something like uh, what we've just seen with George Floyd, and there are many others who are killed who don't just don't have video, but the families and witnesses are telling us, you know, we are able to mobilize and organize. What was so different about this, that the community did not wait for organizers. People, it was very grassroots. There have been more protests on the ground here than I have ever seen. And they are not making not only the local news, but national news, small towns in northern and southern Minnesota. People are out protesting and people are coming out in numbers in the suburbs of the metro area. Right. Oh, who have never organized protests, they're out in the street, they're protesting, or they're standing up, lining up along streets with signs. They are out here because so many people are, are completely outraged, and that's not being covered. Additionally, what you'll find, and this is always the case, if it's reported in the news that there were about 500 people out, 
that means that there were probably 1,000 to 1,500 people out demonstrating, demonstrating and protesting. So when you see the numbers, they cannot be used in any type of historical context because they are not a true representation of the people that are out protesting, especially when it comes to like a Black Lives Matter uh, protest or a Twin Cities Coalition for Justice for Jamar. When we organize a protest, those numbers are greatly diminished because what we know is that the people in the corporate media, what they don't want is for people to really see the numbers that are turning out and what is happening here, which makes it that much more important that we're out here and that we have people using their social media and showing the, the crowds and the numbers, because that's where you're going to see what is truly happening. As far as reporting our protests being violent, breaking cars, burning cars, breaking, uh, breaking, breaking glass windows, spray painting. Those aren't acts of violence, right? Acts of violence are acts that are committed against living beings, whether human animals, those are acts of violence. We're not going to have acts of violence against inanimate objects, right? Building and structures. So often they'll say a protest became violent. No, it may have become destructive, which some people may even consider that constructive because sometimes you have to tear things down in order to rebuild them. So we have a lot of the language being used by the mass media reporting this, which is really not telling of what truly we're, we're seeing here. The violence is taking part on behalf of the police or other military that is brought in, such as the National Guard, towards the protesters. That's where the violence comes in. When we have officers, when we have SWAT, when we have the local police, when we have the sheriff's department that's coming out and using their flash grenades, when they're using what are called rubber bullets, which are far from rubber bullets, from which we've seen people permanently injured. I know of two people who've lost um, an eye. They lost vision in their eye. Um, people are getting burns. People are literally saying that they were shot in the face intentionally, you know, with, uh, with rubber bullets, tearing their cheek. So the violence is on behalf of the establishment, on behalf of the local state government towards the protesters and also taking part in those acts of violence are the white supremacists who have been allowed historically, I mean, and even recently to continue to target black people and black and allies to black people without consequence. So that just encourages them to come into our spaces to incite violence. So the protests, the organizers, we, we are peaceful. We can be loud. We can come out in numbers, but, but we're peaceful. It is the system and those that the system protects who are creating the violence against us. Absolutely. I mean, I was on the ground. Uh, I met you there um, at a protest for George Floyd. And yes. um, I was live streaming, Monique, and I saw, I recorded, I filmed the police shooting at drivers literally cross, you know, passing through a neighborhood and they were shooting rubber bullets, um, shattering, you know, windshields. And I saw families inside those cars and I, and I, I saw little children in those cars. They didn't even, the police didn't even block off the roads. 
And um, that was one of the most traumatic things that I had witnessed here in Minneapolis. You know, I'm sure you've seen some things, but that was one of the most traumatic things that I had seen. So it's pretty incredible to hear how the media has been framing uh, the protesters as violent when they're marching through demanding justice and the police come in at them shooting at them. Right. They're the ones causing a lot of the violent um, acts. Like you said, it it is towards um, other people. And um, uh, Margaret, you know, something that I think is really important is that Floyd's murder was not has not only lifted the veil to expose America's epidemic of police brutality. And we're going to talk a lot about that, by the way. But I think it's really important that we also talk about racial and economic injustice. Um, you know, being on the ground and listening to the protesters, um, I didn't just hear people chanting about justice for George Floyd, but people were calling for uh, several other issues. How has income, I want to talk about income inequality, played a role in fueling the anger in these protesters? Um, we've seen like Wells Fargo's being burnt to the ground, uh, for as an example. And how have African Americans been affected by this specifically? Well, we're we're. I think a lot of the anger that was sparked by, um, obviously, there was outrage, just near universe, universal revulsion at seeing uh, George Floyd being killed. But I think it set off this spark because people are suffering in so many other ways. We have an economy that does not meet the needs of the masses of people. Half of all Americans are low income. And this is something that's never talked about. The corporate media doesn't talk about it. Politicians don't talk about it. And this was before the COVID-19 pandemic and the quarantines, which created uh, more something. Um, the last number I saw was 35 million new uh, applications for unemployment insurance and a country which is such a failed state that people couldn't even access the benefits that they earned. All of these things. And of course, the suffering of this, uh, this new disease, which disproportionately hit, uh, black communities across the country. There are some places in the country where the only people who died of COVID were black. So, uh, there were other people who, um, uh, whose last words were, I can't breathe. They may have died in uh, the emergency room being intubated. So all of the, all of these things, and there, and there's one more issue that I want to talk about. And that is the fact that the democratic party, the putative left-ish party, uh, has crushed its progressive wing, uh, with Bernie Sanders capitulation. I think many of the, uh, the white people who have joined these protests, I would wager that almost all of them were Sanders supporters and they were told to disappear. They were told that the democratic party does not want to hear from them. They were told to go away, to be quiet. They are all dressed up with no place to go, as I say, and they are ready to express their frustration with uh, the system. So you have this ongoing um, uh, uh, ep- epidemic of uh, police violence. Uh, and, and I think, too, that when when these cases are publicized, uh, Ahmed Arbery's case became known to the public just a few weeks before George uh, Floyd was killed. And I think that builds and builds. Mm-hmm. So you have people out of work, People suffering, people angry about, of course, they're angry at Wells Fargo, one of the most corrupt banks in the country that stole people's homes when the market crashed. So all of these things are uh, combining to create 
this new movement and people are losing their fear, but we must not lose sight of all of these systemic issues that um, are are keeping this movement alive. And I think it will live past any resolution of uh, uh, any criminal charges or prosecution or conviction in uh, the case of George Floyd's killing. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk a lot about Democrats here because as the protests have swollen in number and public opinion polls showed that the large majority of Americans support the protests, um, we have seen the Democratic establishment trying to embrace the movement as their own, right? We were seeing Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and other top Democrats, um, you know, took a knee while wearing <laughs> Kente cloth. And actually, Margaret, you wrote about this, and I, I believe our, our web editor might have republished your article about this, but... Uh, meanwhile, yes. Hillary Clinton stated explicitly in writing that Black Lives Matter, right? Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter. <laughs> this represents a huge shift in the Democratic position, rhetor- rhetorically at least. Um, now, a leaked 2015 Democratic Party memo on dealing with Black Lives Matter told members to listen to their concerns, but instructed them clearly, don't offer support for concrete policy positions. And I'm, I'm going to get to my question here in just a second. But one year later, Obama, Obama uh, chastised NFL quarterbacker um, Colin Kaepernick silent kneeling at the protest, telling him to think about the pain that Colin Kaepernick is causing through his kneeling. I mean, what explains this shift? Is there is this mere opportunism from the Democratic Party, Margaret? Well, there has not been a shift. They're still not addressing the issues. They are still they will go for the performance for that. The stupid kneeling and uh uh, Nancy Pelosi could barely get up off the floor. I think it was emblematic <laughs> of the the foolishness of the of right. this whole. So they will pull off a stunt, and they will say that Black Lives Matter, but they have rejected any of the demands that people are making. A lot of people are demanding uh, defunding the police, which is highly problematic. Um, people should look at Black Agenda report this week. Glenn Ford's column he explains why that's a problem. Other people are demanding community control of the police. People are talking about prison ab- abolition, police abolition, things that were um, only a handful of people uh, spoke about or knew about are now on the lips of millions of people. But the Democrats have rejected all of these demands because they, in, if they were to uh, respond they would help be opening an, uh, a whole can of worms of injustices that they go along with because their allegiance is to their donor class, not to the people. So they will paint Black Lives Matter on the street. They'll wear, wear Kenta cloth and kneel, but they are not responding to the demands that people are making. And they'll say the words Black Lives Matter, but that shouldn't impress us either. Right. And, um, you know, the protesters, I'm, I mean, I feel so proud of many of them because they are calling out the two-party system. I heard, I mean, I was with Monique at this one event. I forgot the gentleman's name, but he was speaking at the event. He's an organizer, and he was saying, you know, Democrats, get out of here. <laughs> you know, leave us alone. You mm-hmm. know, we, don't, we don't want your charade. Um, and Monique, I want you to talk to me about, like, on the local front, because while Democrats have rhetorically, of course, it's all show, you know, we know that, supported the protest, they appear to be categor- categorically against the core demands, as Margaret has said, um, that have come out. Um, defunding or dismantling the police, they've come out against this. 
Um, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey, he was booed and heckled, um, you know, out of a rally for opposing calls to do so. Why do Democrats, even on the local front, seem to be as much of a barrier to the movement for structural change as Republicans? Monique, are you there? Okay. Well, <laughs> well, here, here we go. The Democrats and Republicans are both capitalists, right? So capitalists will never put people before profit. And so this is why they're basically in the same pool. The Republicans can be more aggressive and the Democrats will be more, more passive. But bottom line, neither one of them have done anything to respond to not only the cause of Black Lives Matter, and, but the, really the cause of the true people. Um, because this movement is still, it's greater than Black Lives Matter and that call for justice. This is about all oppressed people coming together and people who are not oppressed using their white privilege even to come into those spaces and aid the call for justice for all. So when we're talking about the Democrats, what they've done here for us is nothing. Okay. So what we have seen, and this is the reason why I want to talk specifically about what's happened here, why so many people are outraged is that we had an 18 day occupation to try and get justice for Jamar Clark with 20 witnesses coming forward who saw it firsthand, multiple people turning in cell phones, right to the FBI that mm -hmm. had the footage on it, getting it back with no footage showing that Jamar Clark was handcuffed. People who stood there recording had their guns taken by Minneapolis police at gunpoint, right? Film that was taken from three buildings, three commercial buildings, that all of a sudden they're like, oh, the cameras were not working. So we saw what the system did to protect these officers who killed Jamar Clark, right? It didn't matter what witnesses said. But then we watched the same people, the same prosecutor, we saw Mike Freeman, we saw the same thing just thrown in our face when Justine Demond, a white woman, was killed by a black officer who's Muslim and Somali, Officer North, with no witnesses, right? right. Just the, the, the officer in the car with Officer North. And what happens? The mayor's gone. The police chief is gone. They, they get rid of them. They hand over this family, this white family, a check for $20 million two million of which they donate to the uh, wow. Minneapolis foundation, which is a, a, which is not good for, for the community, not good for the people who are in need, not good for us. But yet Jamar Clark was family was offered a measly following that award to the white family. Jamar Clark's black family was offered a settlement of like $10,000. So they're showing us in, in concrete ways that black lives do not matter, that they do not care to protect Black lives or even compensate us, right? So they had to fight. So Jamar Clark's family ended up getting 1% of what Justine DeMond's family got. Like, how crazy is that? So they're, they're, they're showing us by not, this is the Democrats, are they pushing for, for uh, prison time for white supremacists who are coming against us? We had five people shot at the Jamar Clark occupation, three of them with series of emails plotting and planning, they are white supremacists. They only charged one of them for shooting five people. And I believe he got, what, five years? One person is, is permanently um, disabled. I don't even think he's able to eat food and needs 24-hour care. So the system with the Democrats in control, this is the mayor, this is um, an on down. They've not done anything to throw support behind 
Black Lives Matter, the best that has been done was when one Republican proposed initially um, a law stating that organizers would be responsible for the cost of protest and paying the bills for the police that are put on duty to uh, to guard, watch, or shepherd whatever they consider themselves doing. So you proposed that. That didn't pass. Same one came back a couple years later. Um, I What's his name? Something like Zorowski or something. So what he said the next time was, two or more people gathered in one space is considered a protest and it is now against the law. So craziness like that from this man who's out in Anoka where there are no protests and those are the only legislations that have had so had had been proposed before the death of of George Floyd and they were against the movement but at the same time no one was making laws to protect us right and we know that this can happen because what we saw Prince died guess what there was an emergency session called into place so that they could get laws to protect the assets of Prince that that those laws were written expeditiously, a special session for Prince. But we've seen not only black men, native men, right? And even white men, right? Because greater in Southern Minnesota, people killed, no legislation for us. No legislation to protect the families, no legislation to hold police accountable, to have um, mandatory minimum sentences for certain acts committed by the police, right? So what we see is that the Democrats are not forced, they're not trying to protect us. We saw John Choi, the prosecutor of uh, Officer Yanez, during the Philando uh, Castillo execution, right? He had one charge, one, one charge. And then I'm looking and I'm seeing, wow, this officer in Atlanta who killed the man at, 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 uh, at Wendy's, 11 charges, right? So what they're saying, like, we don't want to charge our officers. The only officer who's ever gone to prison in Minnesota is the one who killed Justine DeMond, the black man. So no one's getting any justice in Minnesota. It just, it's not happening. The charges that are put on, they're, they're light so that they can, you know, just disappear. And the, the charges that Mike Freeman initially wrote for Chauvin, after lawyers had looked at the looked at them, said any good attorney, any bad attorney, excuse me, they said any bad attorney could get this case thrown out. And then it was turned over to Keith Ellison, which we're talking about why the Democrats don't care. People who are here know Keith Ellison is not the person that we would want as the prosecutor. And he admitted he's not been on that side of the law before. He's been in the defense. So why do we want someone for the first time right. as, as a prosecutor, number one? But we know from his past history, he worked to help end the occupation of the 4th Precinct. He worked against people. Keith Ellison literally said to me and my friend who was asking, is there anything you can do as we were standing at the precinct and flash grenades were going off, they're shooting rubber bullets, marker rounds, and every all the light, smoke-filled air. Is there anything you can do? And that is my witness. Keith Ellison said, I'm only here to look out for my daughter. She's across the street. Oh gosh! <laughs> so oh my he goodness! He said it all right there. Like I, I don't, I don't. He said it right there. I'm, I'm not here for these people. I'm not here about this. I'm only here to look out for my daughter. That's exactly what he said. And was his so daughter protesting right, with you? His guys? daughter was protesting. Uh, yeah, his daughter was protesting. She was there. Um, his son, 
uh, Jeremiah Ellison um, had been protesting. Someone caught a photo of an officer pointing a gun in his face and that, wow. you know, went, went viral. So now, you know, he, he he's in office as a city council member. But we have seen people who look like those getting killed, not doing work for us, mm-hmm. right? So we don't want, the people who know, we don't want Keith Ellison trying to prosecute this. So as I look at like, gee, how many charges? Not enough. And I'm seeing this person, this officer who killed someone at Wendy with 11 charges. That's what I'm talking about. You 11 charges, like failure to render first aid. We've had people with people who we know from independent autopsy who would have survived, but they didn't receive first aid. They could have survived the police encounters. And these officers, even with that one charge, you know, they're going to grand juries and not being charged. Or in, in the case of uh, Hennepin County, you got Mike Freeman who removed the grand jury. He just makes the decision himself. So Democrats have not done nothing to help us and other organizations as well, who you would think are supposed to be doing this work, collecting money, not doing the work. Well, and now we have people like, you know, Amy Klobuchar coming out, right, in support of Black Lives Matter. And like, yes, we should take action to prosecute Derek Chauvin and the the three other officers who were standing witness. But even under her watch, you know, as prosecutor in Minnesota during her time, I think it was 1997 to 2001, she acquitted, um, you know, killer cops, including Derek Chauvin, <laughs> you know, she let him off the hook. And so it's extremely hypocritical. And uh, Margaret, um, today, yes. Amy Klobuchar is being considered um, as a running mate for Joe Biden. I mean, can you talk to me about like, you know, our presidential uh, bid here with Joe Biden, who can barely, you know, form a coherent sentence. And then we have yes. somebody like Amy Klobuchar, who, who could be or even Kamala Harris, who's even being considered as um, you know, they're running his running mate, but both of them have been very tough. Oh, sure they have. And I mean, the fact that Amy Klobuchar can still be considered uh, is an insult and a slap in the face yeah. to um, uh, to Democrats. Uh, but I, I just want to say that everything that Monique said, it's important for us to see how the system uh, works. The, the prosecutors are always in bed with the cops. The only reason I am convinced that Derek Chauvin was arrested is that the precinct was set on fire the night before. Uh, Freeman's comments, he he showed his hand. He had not read the room, as the saying goes, and said he didn't see that there was a reason, I'm paraphrasing, for criminal charges. But protesters went directly to his house that night, and the precinct was burned that night. I am convinced that is why Chauvin was arrested. That is, you know, people talk about uh, so-called right. violence, and, and I agree. Violence is against people. Property crimes are not, to me, violence. But when it was clear that the people were in motion and that um, uh, firing the cops, they just assume, oh, we're going to fire them right away, and that would be good enough. When they saw that was not good enough, when the precinct was burned, that is when uh, uh, the people up the ante, so to speak, and they had to uh, uh, act differently. Now, what they do in the future, I, it's clear from what Mo- Monique is saying that even uh, what people have done to date is not going to be enough. We have to attack this, his- this uh, system wholesale, not just police violence. Um, 
we but if we're going to talk about the police, we have to talk about community control. And that is a larger is issue about real democracy. We're always told that we live in a democracy, but prosecutors don't represent us. They're supposed to. It's always when someone's charged, it's the people versus uh, so-and-so. But they don't represent us. They represent the cops. It all works hand in hand. The police are a modern day uh, slave patrol. Uh, the people who run the Democratic Party, uh, who, who uh, uh, tell these so-called leaders what to do, uh, are either in approval of or indifferent to the people suffering because they make the people suffer in other ways as well. It's not possible to strike just at the injustice of police violence and not talk about all of the inter uh, um, the interlink uh, linking um, uh, issues of oppression that happened in this country. You're not going to have a just police force and still have injustice everywhere else. You're either going to have justice everywhere or you're going to ha- not going to have it anywhere. And uh, if you have a system that uh, uh, doesn't provide uh, for health care as a human right, and you allow black people to die disproportionately from a disease, then you're also going to have police violence. You're going to have uh, uh, banks like Wells Fargo literally stealing people's homes. It all works together. And we have to think about uh, international issues, too. I know it may seem off topic, but we cannot have justice in a country where 60% of the budget is uh, goes for defense spending. And the U.S. has 800 bases. And yesterday, the U.S. enacted these horrific sanctions, additional sanctions on Syria to try to literally starve out the population and uh, um, do even greater damage to that country than it did before. We can't have a 1033 program where surplus military equipment is used against uh uh, um, uh, Americans, every podunk in the country has an armored vehicle. Uh, so all of these issues have to be attacked. They all, and I know as individuals, we have uh, greater or less interest in one of those things, but we've got to fight for democracy, for socialism. Socialism is democracy. Uh, capitalism is at the root of so many of the things that uh, that I just uh, uh, talked about. You can, you're not going to have a country with a, a, a health care system that's profit-driven that's also going to care about uh, uh, how the police treat people. So we have to stay focused not just on these individual cases, but on the entire systemic oppressions that uh, cause so many uh, injustices to take place. And Margaret, I really appreciate you talking about that because you're absolutely right. It doesn't just start, you know, it's not just a local issue. It's not just about police brutality, it's not just about race, but it's about dismantling an entire system that is built on uh, injustice. And we have to tackle the military industrial complex because the police system that we have today is there to protect the 1%, the billionaire class. And the military industrial complex is there. It's a tool that is utilized by the 1% to enforce um you know to take control and exploit uh overseas and also here in our own, on our own soil and margaret i i want you to talk about um you know the black panther party because that that group was created um as a revolutionary socialist um 
you know, political organization founded by Marxist college students. And, you know, I, you know, we don't hear a lot about the Black Panther Party today, but talk to me about how that grew out of the many issues that you just brought up. Well, the Black Panther Party has its, uh, roots in the liberation movement of what people usually call the civil rights movement, uh, grew out of SNCC. The Black Panther became a symbol, uh, an icon uh, um, uh, in, uh, in the South during that struggle. The uh, Panthers had a 10-point program, and people keep repeating it, uh, the Movement for Black Lives, the organization um, uh, I believe, uh, used that as the basis for, uh, some of their demands. Uh, but it was the Black Panther Party for self-defense. They asserted that people had the right to defend themselves. They argued, they were founded now it's a little more than 50 years ago. They demanded that the community control the police. So, um, while the, um, uh, the organization was uh, destroyed by the FBI, by COINTELPRO, and uh, people were either co-opted or became uh, political prisoners, some of whom are still imprisoned uh, or were just killed outright, um, that those ideas live on. And I think it's important for us to know, to know this history and not think that we're, that anybody's doing anything for the first time. Uh, every upheaval, every rebellion in this country uh, uh, has, um, involving black people, has been focused on the issue of police violence. Right. Uh, here in New York City in the 40s, there was riots that started in Harlem when a, a soldier was shot by uh, the police. So the uh, Freddie Gray Rebellion, Newark in the 60s, Watts in the 60s, I, I could go on. But we have to tackle... Um, all of these problems, and we have to be wise in looking back at our history to see what did and didn't work, uh, understand how our movements were uh, crushed, and um, determine how to avoid those um, uh, the same thing from repeating itself in the present day. And, um, you know, you mentioned something really important, which is... Um you know, this grew out of fighting poverty and empowering the black community and fighting injustice and fighting and supporting civil civil rights. And when I think of the Black Panther Party, you know, through what I've learned from them is that they supported community efforts um, through food drives, providing mm -hmm. supplemental education and fighting police brutality, like you said, through community policing. And Monique, you know, when I've been, you know, downtown and you have been downtown, obviously organizing, you've seen this firsthand. I've seen the community come together in more ways than I have um, seen like the state come and support uh, the people in South Minneapolis or North Minneapolis. Talk to me about local organizing and its roots and how it's played an extremely vital role in actually supporting these communities versus what the state and politicians um, are doing. What are you seeing on the ground? So on the ground, um, we do have we have many organizations that have been working on like Twin Cities Coalition for Justice um, for Minneapolis City of Minneapolis is working on community control of the police. Been working on that for <clears throat> probably a year and a half before we started, you know, kind of rolling rolling that out. Um, we have so many little grassroots organizations that come out and support in solidarity. So if you were to look at like an event on Facebook, you might see 15 different organizations that are co-hosting the event because we have, you know, we are like-minded. 
and they are standing up for for black lives, but also, you know, we will support them in the work that they're doing. So at the grassroots level, we have uh, Poor People's Campaign is here. We've got, um, which, you know, that kind of speaks for itself in the work that, that is being done around that because the lack of income, right, causes people to have more negative encounters and outcomes with police, right? Um, even by the area you, you, you may live and whatnot. We also have um, some groups that are working on like mental health. So they, and, and a lot of that is some, from, from some families who had called uh, for well checks on their family members that were, were called by police. We've got, you know, uh, uh, Native Lives Matter that's out with us. We've got um, uh, Women Against Military Madness reached out. They're like, yeah, we want to join you in the work that you're doing. How can we help? We've got uh, Satua. We've got union groups that have come out, right? Because most, many of the people that are killed by the police are working class. So, Aside from the specific work that these groups are doing, they do come and they show up, you know, and they're really showing up now with uh, George Floyd. We had a lot show up during uh, Jamar Clark and um, began to somewhat fall off. But organizations and groups that are out that are posting their um, own events. We have some um, um, Latinx groups that are working, you know, on immigrants rights as, as well that are coming out. Because the people here, what I love about Minnesota, the people recognize that you know we're we're all connected, and and the struggle in order to really break down the barriers and the white supremacist um, really culture in America is going to take all of us together doing the work because then we can all move forward and prosper. You know, America looks at um, as America is looked at by white supremacists. Um, and capitalists as a pie with only so many pieces, you know, but that's not the case. There is more than enough for everyone to be fed. We have enough in America. Not only can we feed, you know, American, I'm talking about feeding, not just in terms of food. I'm talking about everything that people need for nourishment. Really, we can nourish people. It's education, it's housing, it's health care, you know, it's uh, food supply, you know. It's all kind of things in terms to nourish people. And America has enough, not only for America, to stop being social, but to help the world, right? right? So when we talk about America first, it should be the opposite. When you help others first, we have enough right now. We could go and help others as we are building and creating a better America. But it's that pie with limited amount where people are hoarding great wealth because they want to pass on riches from generation to generation, riches that... Uh, for many people is gained either illegally or through the institution of slavery, right? People trying to hold on to the money that they have, trying to hold on to their white privilege, who's trying to block opportunities for people of color. So we have enough here. And the people recognize that who are organizing, you know, on the ground and work together. And many people, they're coming forward and they're saying, okay, look, it, I am the descendant of slave owners. You know, and I have to deal with that and I'm trying to work. What can I do? How, how can I help? And white people are waking up. I just talked to someone who started a, a group. She's like, I'm working on this. I want white people to recognize the white privilege and what we need to do to help other people. Right. So when white people are taking responsibility and, and waking other people up as to look, this is a different life that we are living you know, then we see change. And so we have a lot of grassroots work that is going on here. And, and, and that's not anything that we see 
coming from the DFL at all, period. Nothing like that. We don't have the DFL saying, hey, we're going to institute, you know, um, anti-racist training into the school curriculum. We're going to institute anti-racist training into all the government positions, you know, where there's things that can be done, but they're not being done. So, no, the DFL and, of course, Republicans are, are not doing anything to help. And and I do want to go back, if I can touch on Amy Klobuchar um, and Joe sure, Biden. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. We shut down Amy Klobuchar's campaign right here, you know, in her home state. We shut that down because we we're calling for justice and the freedom of Mayan Burrell, a 16-year-old boy who she incarcerated wrongfully, who also lost his mother because she went to go visit him while he was still in jail. I don't think he was in the prison wow. yet. And she was killed in a car accident on the way home. Amy Klobuchar would not let Mayan Burrell out of the jail to go to his mother's funeral, but she has the nerve to show up at George Floyd's funeral as right. if she has any value or respect for black lives. She does not. That is very clear. And what she did, she took the laws because Joe Biden is the father of mass incarceration. She took the laws that Joe Biden wrote and used them to increase the incarceration of black men and black boys by 600% while she was the county prosecutor, while she was the Hennepin County prosecutor. So if you get Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar, who I would say are two white supremacists, because they have seen the harm that they have caused to black families and black communities and done nothing. Joe Biden should never have been considered even for a running mate for Obama because he wrote the legislation, not only for the mass incarceration, but he also wrote the legislation that created the, the difference between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. So he has done more harm to the black family, to the black communities and Amy Klobuchar than actually than our current 45 Trump has done. And black people are still standing behind Joe Biden. And I don't understand it at all because we have to hold people accountable ourselves. And that should have been called out long ago. For the two of them to be together, I promise you, if they come here, we will shut that down. Right. And, you know, I was at the memorial just to go off of some of the, <laughs> to address one of the points that you made. Um, you know, clearly the, the Democrats have lost their minds, right? They think that they still have um, some some leeway or whatever you want to call it with, um, you know, communities of color and disenfranchised communities. But the truth is, is that they are, the you know, leading the way in exploiting us, right? Um, and what I saw when I went to the memorial for, for George Floyd is I saw such a huge turnout of community from like, like both of you have said, you know, people from all across the state and the country coming together uh, to support the South Minneapolis community who have really been disenfranchised um, by the state. And a lot of these people are, have lost their jobs. Um, a lot of them are essential workers. Some of them are making minimum wage. And I saw the community handing out diapers for free, handing out food for free, you know, community <clears throat> restaurants coming out and just offering free food to everybody to make sure that everybody was fed, was clothed and taken care of. And I was there and I, I swear to both of you, I started crying because it was just such an inspiring thing to see that, you know, we can take care of each other. Right. Some, you know, we don't need uh, a corrupt political system to take care of us. We can do it ourselves. And so 
Um, this leads me, and we and we have been talking about so many things, and I haven't even got to the to the to the ending yet, and we'll get to the solutions. Um, but uh, Margaret, you had mentioned that um, you know, there are so many so many demands people are coming out with with whether it's you know defunding the police, dismantling the police, you know, community policing. Talk to me about what is the solution to this police brutality problem. What what should we do? Is it defunding the police? You know, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? No, because the, they use sleight of hand with these budgets. So, for example, I just heard in Philadelphia, they claim they are cutting money from the police budget. Mm-hmm. But what they actually did was take some civilians, uh, take their roles out of the police department, like school crossing guards and people like that. So they'll no longer be paid by the Philly police department. And they claim that is defunding the police. That is the danger in depending on this argument of defunding the police. Also, they could defund the police and then we could end up with private police department, private militias of some kind. So our demand should be for community control of the police. Uh, I believe that um, uh, police brutality cases need to be handled by the Justice Department. Now, of course, that will vary depending upon who the president is. But it should be it should be out of the hands of these local prosecutors. Um, and I, I it's clear um, uh, and I, I'm going to repeat what I said. They are not going to change what they do unless the people um, rise up. Right. And uh, uh, burning the precinct is not always something you can do, but they have to be afraid. And uh, you, you, don't, you don't give them a reason for fear if you just talk about uh, defunding the police, which is problematic for many reasons. Um, uh, so those are some of the concrete things. Community control of the police, community control of so many things in our lives, uh, real democracy, um, a system that works for the people, not for profit. That will uh, uh, handle um, uh, a lot of this. But I, I think the the federal government needs to have the responsibility for prosecuting uh, police. We can't allow ourselves to be uh, distracted by uh, getting rid of their immunity. Uh, that's I, I don't believe that's something we need to spend our energy on. Uh, but we need to talk about taking policing out of their hands and into our hands because we are the ones who are uh, under attack. And we need to support people uh, who have joined this struggle. It is a good thing that this has become a multi-racial, uh, multi-ethnic uh, movement. This is something that's also scaring them. And that's why they want to... Uh, uh, you know, wear kenta cloth and, and take a knee because they are afraid when they see uh, if white people and black people march about police violence, what will we march about together next? We could be marching in a general strike. We could be marching to get them out of office. We could be working together on any number of things that they do not want to see. And uh, but I have to say also one of the good things is this um, the fact that we've given so much attention to George Floyd and uh, um, uh, Rayshard Brooks in uh, Atlanta, uh, we're exposing also the corruption of the political leadership. And some of those corrupt political leaders are black. And they are, uh, when Rayshard Brooks was killed and the, that Wendy's fast food restaurant was set on fire, 
That's why those cops were fired and arrested. Once again, that's what we see in that horrible mayor there, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who told people not to march and said, if you want to change, just want change, all you have to do is vote. Is a, that is an outright lie. So um, uh, I think the people need to continue what uh, we are doing, but I think we also have to be careful and we have to educate ourselves to make sure that our demands are sound and uh, are going to advance our cause. Right. And, you know, Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz recently just approved a $62 million assistance package for small businesses with a focus on black and indigenous communities. Of course, mentioned in there are veterans, female and greater Minnesota business owners. And this was actually in response to um, the calls of protesters demanding that there be more efforts by the state to support um, black and indigenous communities. Um, it seems like politicians are listening, right? That's what they're trying to tell us and trying to assist communities of color. Um, and Monique, I want you to, to respond to this because you have, you know, a lot of local experience, especially here in Minnesota. Um, is this all talk? Does this kind of funding actually reach the communities that need them the most or who does this money really go to? So is, I, I, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, a bill that was being proposed for specifically um, for like the, the COVID response, is that the one that you're referring to, or is this one that's it, this this I'm one is actually to... this one is in response to the protests. I mean, it was just announced yesterday. Okay, you don't have to talk about this bill specifically, no. this package, but I... just in general, you know, when when things like this happen, do they actually reach communities of color? Well, first of all, the fact that Greater Minnesota's included in there—that's where the money's going to go. Greater Minnesota's white. There's, you're not going to find really black people or, you know, in greater Minnesota. And it's, it, hey, Twin Cities is small. So the fact that greater Minnesota is included in that, um, I really don't know how many um, black business owners or um, or people will w- w- get that. I know it's that black, indigenous, and I know that there is a great deal of, um, you know, uh, Latinx and Hmong businesses between like, uh, like, Lake in Minneapolis and University in St. Paul as well. So I'm not sure if it's like a people of color designation, but the fact that Greater Minnesota is in there, um, I'm I'm concerned. They, I, I I would I would hope that there is a set amount that has to be used in the metro area, you know. Um, but I, I know there is a black population like in Rochester and and in St. Cloud, but Greater Minnesota is huge. Right. It's huge. And that could dissipate um, the majority of that loan and particularly how they are they marketing that loan? How are they getting touch with the black business owners and other POC business owners to get this information out? Because that is also has also been a problem in the past that there are grants, there's funding, but the black people don't know about it. That's a good point. Yeah, because they have to apply for it, too. They have to be able to apply for it. So they need information to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, I have concerns. So this is this is one of my final questions for both of you. Um, I know both of you know, this has been a, a this has been an incredible conversation. I've learned so much from both of you, but I need to get something off my chest, which has been so frustrating for me every time there are mass protests against police brutality. 
I go online and there are some folks saying, oh, look, it's a George Soros funded color revolution. What? Where? <laughs> where is this conspiracy? <laughs> you know, maybe, Margaret, you can talk to us first about this. And Monique, you can, you can tell us about like the local front. But Margaret, where is this conspiracy coming from? Where is it rooted from? And why are you know, who are these people? Well, the, the people say it in order to uh, delegitimize the movement. Right. And yes, it's true. Soros gives a lot of money to a lot of groups like to Movement for Black Lives, which uh, has uh, um, morphed into this uh uh, what do we call it? The nonprofit industrial complex. And they right. get a lot of money from foundations and rich people and are too cozy with the Democrats. All that is true of that organization. So there is a grain of truth there, mm -hmm. but we cannot uh, allow ourselves to uh, uh, delegitimize the entire uh, movement. And uh, I, I think too, there's, and, and there are some people who just like to believe in conspiracies. I think they actually prefer it, frankly, than to uh, actually thinking about things. And this whole notion of a color revolution, there's not going to be a color revolution in the United States. It's not Ukraine. I mean, this is just stupid. Uh, but, but the goal is to, um, is to um, minimize our importance and to convince people who might uh, join the movement to try to discourage them from having any involvement. So I think we can ignore these people and we can ask them, well, what is your, where, what do you, what is it you want to see? How grassroots does a movement need to be? It's the spontaneous uh, nature of this movement that has the power uh, and I am also concerned, and I think it's connected, the corporations suddenly are giving money to Movement for Black Lives, the organization, um, suddenly saying they're going to give money to black people to quiet us down. It's a sort of a compliment. It's an indication that uh, this uh, new movement has been successful. They wouldn't want to buy you off if you hadn't accomplished anything. But uh, I think we, we have to be careful and look at the history of the people making this statement. Uh, and that also tells us whether or not it's uh, anyone we need to uh, be um, uh, taking seriously. And it's also an old tool. It was something in the 60s that uh, Martin Luther King was getting a lot of money from this one or that one. Uh, or that uh, uh, people were being bought off and it's a way to say that we really uh, have uh, nothing to contribute and nothing to complain about. So uh, we have to uh, uh, denounce this, uh, this lie every time we see it. Right. And there are nonprofit organizations, like you said, the nonprofit industrial complex, where they are receiving so much money from figures like George Soros and other, you know, prominent establishment uh, figures and billionaires um, um, and either one of you can answer this question, but does it actually trickle down to these movements at all? Because this has been something that I keep hearing online. And does it actually affect um, these protests? Um, I, I don't I don't believe it does trickle down. I'm not a part of the National um, Black Lives Matter organization. I organize with Black Lives Matter Minnesota and Black Lives Matter Twin Cities Metro. I, I and and. Because I'm still a Black Lives Matter activist, as I've met people from across the country who lost their loved ones to uh, police executions, I have had some Black backlash that I've had to counter with the truth that we, the people in my organization, we work jobs. We work. We're not 
getting money from Mm -hmm. any group. We might have someone donate, oh, here's $50. You can get some vests or here's, you can get some bottled water for your protest. You know, that's, that's, that's what we're getting. We're getting, you know, little things that trickle in, you know, which are great. Like, Hey, get some, um, yeah, yeah. You're going to need some ice here. I got some ice and people, you know, we're, we, we don't have money like that. We're not getting money like that. Um, and I, so I do hear from families across the country complaining like the, what the families need, they're, they're not getting the, if, when you have that kind of money, I would think, Hey, maybe you could say, Hey, families need private investigators. Families need lawyers to write letters to preserve data and evidence, you know? Families need, there's a lot of things that families need that they could get that they don't feel that they're receiving, you know, beyond protest. It doesn't cost a lot of money to have protests. You might need to rent rent a truck, rent a sound system, buy some bottled water, put some gas in the truck when you're done. But it doesn't cost a lot to have protests, you know, maybe buy a sign. I mean, we make our own banners and stuff, you know, um, get some spray paint and, you know, and I, I buy my own materials, you know. Um, for that. So it, 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 I, I, it doesn't, I don't see it trickling down. I don't. And and the other, the other problem with giving all this money is all you're doing is creating, uh, new members of the, uh, black misleadership class, the black political class. We have more people who are self-interested, more people who are co-opted, more people who will have money or good paying jobs who are not doing anything for the rest of us just giving an out to the people who are doing the oppressing. So I I have been telling people, don't give money to the movement for black lives. Don't give them money. Try to find locally who's really doing grassroots work. Uh, Monique is right. The, you know, people have some image of uh, uh, black lives matter chapters being in an office and people working for them. And that's just not true. So um, it's a, that name is problematic. It became a rallying cry. Uh, and it speaks to a, a deep human uh, need for justice, but the organization Movement for Black Lives is problematic for a lot of reasons. Well, thank you both, uh, Margaret Kimberly um, from the Black Agenda Report and Monique Colors Doty, uh, an organizer, a local organizer for the Black Lives Matter. I've certainly learned so much from both of you, and I um, it was such a treat to talk to both of you today um, about these issues. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you both. Thank you. Nice to, to meet you, so to speak. Both yes, of you. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Hopefully we can we can continue to have these conversations um, again in the near future. Um, that's a wrap for today's Midcast podcast. This program is 100% listener supported. You can join the hundreds of financial sponsors who make this show possible by becoming a member on our Patreon page. We'll see you next week.